And turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14 this morning. Uh, today we'll be concentrating on verses 4 and 5 today as we continue our verse-by-verse uh, verse look at this wonderful book of Revelation. Uh, the title of our message today is Four Keys to the Christian Life. You know, the, the, uh, the book of Revelation, I don't know about you, uh, but for me personally, I, I am just... Uh, more and more enthralled with this book as we uh, continue studying it, as uh, it becomes more and more clear, Revelation 1 and verse 3, which says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. You know, you can approach the book of Revelation and just kind of think, oh, this is about the tribulation or this is about the future. And it's really neat to study prophecy and to know these things that are gonna, going to take place in the future. But in, and that's all true, but in reality, this book is written uh, for you and for me today. And there is a blessing. In, in understanding these things, not just the things about the future, but things like we are talking about this morning in Revelation 14, 4 and 5, that, that pertain exactly, perfectly to us today in the 21st century and uh, what the Lord expects, is, expects, expects of us in our Christian lives. And in this passage, we see really uh, just very point blank, four keys to the Christian life that each and every one of us as believers in Christ can apply to our lives so that we can be more pleasing to him, uh, which is the goal of our lives. That's our scripture reading this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, whether we're in uh, heaven, he means, or we're, uh, or we're still here on earth, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He says that that could happen in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as believers you and I could be caught up, meet the Lord in the air, taken to heaven, and immediately stand before him in judgment or sometime shortly thereafter. There might be a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of like coming into church. You know, you see everybody, oh, hey, wow, it's great to see you. And then church starts. I, I sort of picture uh, the rapture and the judgment seat of Christ being similar to that. We'll have a bit of a reunion and then it's going to get serious pretty fast because the judgment seat of Christ is not just a, uh, we're standing on the medal stand and we get to receive our gold medal for uh, participating in the Christian life. Notice what it says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So yes, there is, uh, I don't, we're not going to be punished at the judgment seat of Christ per se. Jesus Christ took all of our, the punishment for all of our sins upon himself. Wholeheartedly agree with that, but it's not, it's not going to be a time of overwhelming celebration, I don't think. Uh, there, there's you're going to be recompensed for the deeds in your body. And that's why we have books like the book of Revelation to remind us that this future could happen at any time. It is imminent. It is he, Jesus Christ is standing at the door and he gives us portions in this book that so clearly, so absolutely pertain to our lives to encourage us to be pleasing to him during our lives. So today we'll look at four keys to the Christian life. Of course, this is in the midst of a, a study of the tribulation. That's the wonder of, uh, of this book of Revelation. Right in the midst of learning about events of the tribulation, we get a lesson about how we ought to be living today. So we find ourselves in one of these breaks 
in the action, the second intermission, if you will, between the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments that are to come where we're getting uh, some more information about what's going to take place. And in chapter 14, we really have uh, four visions. This comes on the heel of chapter 12. Uh, Another aspect of the book of Revelation is that it just, it absolutely reveals the world in which we are living. Like, why are there bad things? Well, there's a person, a, a fallen angel by the name of Satan, and he has an entire legion of demons uh, with him. And we are fallen people, and we live in the midst of this fallen world that is ruled over by Satan. Chapter 12 clearly uh, describes that battle between Christ and Satan. Not really a battle, but Satan battling against Christ and God, if you will. Chapter 13, uh, Satan is going to have two main characters that he uses during this tribulation period uh, to inflict harm on Israel and any person who believes in Christ for salvation. Those, are, those two are the Antichrist. He's going to be the, the world ruler. Uh, we saw a lot of information about him. Uh, And he's also going to have this false prophet that he uses. He's going to be kind of the right-hand man, if you will, of the Antichrist. He's going to require the world, subsequent to the midpoint of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, if you'll remember, the setting up of an image that, that according to the text, the, the false prophet really brings this image to life. And the world is going to worship this image. It's going to be put into the temple in Jerusalem. And the false prophet is going to require the world to worship this image. In fact, he's going to require people in the world to receive a mark on their right hand or their forehead uh, that is a sign of worship in order to really live in the world. Otherwise, you're going to be canceled, like permanently. <laughs> Have your head cut off. This isn't, this isn't uh, not being allowed to post to Facebook or Instagram. This is losing your life uh, for taking a stand for the Lord. And then chapter 14, uh, there's a, a, really it's a means of encouragement for the tribulation saints who are going to read this book. And it ought to be a, a means of encouragement to, to us today in the church age also, but it consists of four visions. We First, the part we're dealing with today, verses 1 through 5, this vision of the 144,000, uh, essentially being triumphant, have, making it to the end, being in the kingdom. We saw last time they're standing on Mount Zion with Christ. That's a picture of the kingdom, messianic kingdom period. And then uh, probably next week, we'll get to the the next vision, these two angels that we see, one with an eternal gospel, one proclaiming the fall of Babylon. And then beginning in verse 9, there's another angel pronouncing doom for those who worship the beast. And then uh, beginning in verse 14, the, the vision of these reapers who reap those who worshiped the beast rather than Christ, their ultimate doom. So this is a a means of encouragement to the the audience of the book, the believers uh, today and believers in the future. Tribulation period, of course, will also be encouraged by this because we get a vision of the end. Christ is going to be victorious. These people are going to be punished for worshiping the beast. Therefore, remain faithful to worship Christ. And of course, this all takes place. What we're, what we're viewing here is this future tribulation period, seven-year tribulation period as defined by Daniel chapter 9, uh, verses 24 through 27. We know that this period is seven years. We know that this period of time is for the nation of Israel, according to Daniel chapter 9, because the nation of Israel is the key in God's plan for bringing his kingdom to the world. That's why Israel is still important even today. Because according to the words of Jesus, he will not come again to this earth to rule and reign until the nation believes in him. 
Uh, Read Matthew 23, and you'll see that very clearly, particularly the ending verses. The nation of Israel must call on Jesus, and then he will come again. And then Matthew 24 and 25, what's it going to look like before they call on his name? Jesus describes it in the Olivet Discourse. He's describing this same seven-year period that the Apostle John is describing for us in Revelation in even more detail, greater detail. That's what this is all about. And we notice that the church is nowhere to be found in chapters 6 through 19. We never see the Greek word ekklesia in those chapters. We see it over and over and over and over in chapters 1 through 3. Interestingly, oh, in chapter 4, John is called to heaven before this he starts describing this tribulation period. Good evidence that, that the rapture of the church takes place before the tribulation. There's a lot of other evidence. We saw a lot of that in uh, Sunday school this morning. This rapture of the church, we can expect this at any moment to take place. And then subsequent to that, this seven-year tribulation period will kick off beginning with the first seal judgment, we find ourselves about here, halfway through in our study of the book of Revelation, where we find ourselves in chapter 14. Uh, so four keys to the Christian life. You know, the Christian life is, is really a mystery to a lot of people, uh, believers and unbelievers alike, especially the, the motivation behind why we live the Christian life, why we should uh, live the way that we should. You know, do we live the Christian life in order to gain God's forgiveness? You know, we're good people, and hopefully I get to the end, my good's going to outweigh my bad. Is that, is that the motivation for the Christian life? Do we live the Christian life to kind of gain his favor today? You know, if I'm, if I'm a good person, God's going to bless me with uh, material wealth. He's going to give me good grades in school. He's going to make my marriage is going to be good if I just stay on the straight and narrow and, uh, you know, do the things that I just keep those Ten Commandments. My marriage is going to be great. My kids will all grow up and be missionaries to uh, Kenya or whatever. Everything is going to be amazing. If we're doing it for those reasons. Again, both of those are wrong, by the the way. Uh, If we do this, then God will do that for us. No, that's not the way it is at all. The fact of the matter is that we receive the forgiveness of our sins, not based on what we've done, but based on what Christ has done for us. He accomplished it all on the cross, we trust in or believe in, have faith in. All those words mean exactly the same thing. Believe, faith, trust. They all mean the same thing. I'm putting my trust in what Christ did for me and no faith, no trust, no belief in what I do. It's all in what Christ did for me on the cross. And when I do that, I have the forgiveness of sins like our, the last hymn we sung. His grace is greater than our sin. He graciously gives us uh, a right standing with Him. And so then, therefore, we ought to be motivated to live for Him. And our passage today really has these keys, these four keys to the Christian life really wrapped up in it, describing how these people will live in the future, these 144,000 Jewish witnesses, how they lived their lives in the future, and yet it's exactly the same for us. These keys are, are exactly the same for them as they are for us. So today we'll see four things that we as believers can do, should be doing, in order to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, just like Obviously, these 144,000 were very uh, pleasing to the Lord. The first key is to be aware. Be aware of our position in Jesus Christ. And then we'll review again being chased, what that looks like. Quickly, we covered that last week. We'll see that we need to be followers of Christ. What does it mean to be a follower 
of Christ and that honesty is another one of the keys of the Christian life. Notice, uh, we'll begin reading in verse 1, actually, just to set the context again. Revelation 14, 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the hundred and the one hundred and forty-four thousand who had been purchased from the earth. Verse four These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So we'll go, we're actually going to go a little bit out of order uh, from our passage today to come to our first point to be aware of your position in Christ. This, to, to me personally, uh, when I realize this as a believer, what my position in was in Christ or is in Christ, it's it's revolutionary in your uh, your outlook on life, the motivation behind why you live the Christian life, and of course the end result, uh, hopefully, is that you are more and more like Him every day as you continue to remind yourself of the things that Christ has done for us. Knowing the benefits of our salvation is absolutely a foundational to living the Christian life. And if like we, we discussed, we'll get to it here uh, shortly. The book of Ephesians has a lot to say about our position in Christ, particularly if you'll remember chapters one, two, and three, that's essentially what it's all about. The benefits of being uh, in Christ. And so if we don't understand this, if we don't understand what we have in Christ, then we're like a, a person who has $200 million in the bank and is living under a bridge somewhere. Uh, you know, we're, you've got all the resources that you can need to be uh, uh, successful, quote unquote, in this life on the earth with all of these resources, but yet you're not accessing them at all. You're living in a cardboard box under a bridge somewhere uh, trying to beg money for your next meal. That's kind of what we are like as Christians if we don't realize what we have in Christ. So first of all, these, uh, these 144,000, notice kind of the middle of verse 4 or towards the end of verse 4, these have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And then at the end of verse 5, they are blameless. These are foundational things for these 144,000, and they are for us too, because again, this is exactly the same benefits that you and I have in this life today. We have been purchased as first fruits from among men uh, to the Lamb, and we too, as believers, are blameless before God. So these 144,000 like us are in Christ. Now, does God just grant this to everybody? Does he only grant it to the ones who are, uh, have everything in order in their lives and are just constantly uh, in prayer and confessing their sins and, and uh, you know, just helping every old lady across the street that they come across? Only these blessings only go to the really good people? Or does it go to another group who have put their faith, their trust in Christ? Of course, it goes to the second group, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. That is the only uh, uh, requirement to be in Christ is trust in him. Notice Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter 
In really his second sermon in the church age, he, uh, Peter didn't take long for him to get really good at uh, preaching. Acts 4.12, and there is sal- he says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. It isn't found in your good works. It isn't found in following a set of rules. It isn't found in praying three times a day, giving money to the church, belonging to a church. None of that is consequential in receiving the forgiveness for our sins. It only comes through faith in Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we are placed in him. Uh, John 3.16, verse, of course, that we're all very familiar with, uh, says much the same thing, that this uh, one single requirement for salvation is belief or trust in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But then verse 17 makes it even more clear. If you didn't get it in verse 16, Verse 17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world the first time he came, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. The Gospel of John tells us a hundred times that salvation Uh, literally a hundred times that salvation is conditioned on one requirement, and that is belief in Christ. And at the moment that we believe, we are placed into Christ. And when we are in Christ, we are part of his family. We, We immediately have access to every spiritual blessing. First, that are Ephesians 1 and verse 3 tells us, uh, if you'll remember, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, all one big long sentence that, that lays out for us the blessings that we have in Christ, blessings from God the Father, blessings through God the Son, blessings through God the Holy Spirit delineated for us in that incredible passage of Scripture in uh, Ephesians uh, 1 verses 3 through 14. He appointed, uh, he, we won't take the time to read the entire passage, but we are chosen in him in order to be blameless before him. We are, we are appointed by him. Ephesians 1 3 tells us to be holy and blameless before him. He has determined ahead of time that whoever is in Christ, whoever is in him is to be holy and blameless. It doesn't uh, make any uh, statement about we are chosen to be in him. No, we are in him by way of faith. And those who are in him are determined by God to be holy and blameless. We are appointed to a task and that the task is to live before him and to be holy and blameless. He appointed us in him before the foundation of the world. God determined these things before the world was even founded, that those who are in Christ will be holy and blameless and have every spiritual blessing, Ephesians uh, 1.3 tells us. We are... Uh, I lost my notes or it didn't get transferred over. Uh, We are uh, given these blessings by way of faith in him. And uh, they are enumerated in this passage. If I could find it in my Bible, Ephesians chapter one. Uh, He predestined us to adoption as his sons. Uh, He freely bestowed redemption upon us through the shedding of his blood. He made known to us the mystery of his will, this uh, mystery of the church age he revealed to us 
And then in Ephesians 1, in verse 13, it says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So we are in Christ These 144,000 are in Christ through trusting in Him, and they have all of these benefits like we have all of these benefits. Every spiritual blessing is found in Christ. And we have these blessings, uh, the similar thing is spoken of in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8, being in Christ, there's now no condemnation found for us uh, who are in Christ. As a result of being in him, we are found to be uh, perfect in our position in Christ. And notice that these 144,000 have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the lamb they aren't just they aren't just saved or and appointed as, as these 144,000 to make them like just special people and then oh they can go to heaven and be with the lord that's one of the the real mistakes of the church today uh is that people kind of just see salvation as oh I'm going to heaven when I die so everything is great well we like these 144,000 have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God. So what exactly uh, does that mean? Now, in it, the, the Feast of First Fruits is actually based in a Jewish holiday. You can read about that in uh, Leviticus chapter 23, this Feast of First Fruits. Uh, Oftentimes, it is a feast that is celebrated looking forward to a greater harvest in the future. That's kind of the context that we think of it a lot of times. But it also is a, a feast wherein things are gathered in and they're sacrificed to the Lord. And that's really the context that most of the time that this word and concept of first fruits is used in the Old Testament, that's really what it's talking about. And in fact, in the New Testament, that's what it is, is, is how it is mentioned as well. This idea of being chosen, picked for God, for the purpose of sacrifice, to be used for him, to be saved for service. And that's what 2 Thessalonians 2 and uh, verse 13 is all about uh, that we see it says in second thessalonians two thirteen but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you uh, n a s b if you'll remember to our study of second Thessalonians kind of gets it wrong here, chosen from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth it's really better to see that. It is the, the Greek term aparche uh, there that's translated as from the beginning that is better seen as first fruits. You, you have been chosen as first fruits of salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. You have been chosen as a believer to be someone who is used for him in service. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We, we love 2, 8 through 9. Poor verse 10 kind of gets lost in the shuffle a lot of times. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is all of God. You are simply trusting in it. You're not depending on your works in any way, shape, or form. In fact, if you are, you're not believing. If you're trusting in your works, you're not really believing, trusting in what God has done for you. So if you've done that, if you're saved by grace uh, through faith, then verse 10, for we are his workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Have you ever uh, in your life had instances where something just pops up, some opportunity just pops up right in front of your face? Uh, Oh, there's something that I could do for this person. There's some kind of uh, good work, quote unquote, that I could do for this person. Uh, And hopefully when that opportunity springs up right in front of our face, we take it. Because guess what? According to Ephesians 2.10, God worked the circumstances of that together for you to be able to do that good work. Now, sometimes, uh, if we're honest, we might see that and turn the other way and walk, kind of like Jonah did. And when Jonah did that, he didn't uh, suddenly wasn't in danger of being cast into the lake of fire like we're about to read about in Revelation chapter 14. No, he, he committed a sin that needed to be confessed and the same is true for us. You know, if we're, if we're going through this world uh, thinking that we've just got it wired and I, I'm doing everything that I can do for the Lord and I don't, I, I'm just not really seeing sin in my life that needs to be confessed. Yikes, that's uh, kind of a dangerous place to, to be in. And Jesus uh, uh, made mention of that in John chapter 13 with Peter, when Peter said, you know, oh, I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't want just my feet washed when he, when Jesus explained it to him, I want the, I want the, an entire bath. And Jesus told him, well, you've already had the bath. You need your feet washed as you're going through uh, daily life. In other words, the confession of sins in your daily life is very important. And Jesus even says, you know, if you don't do this, you really don't have uh, a part in me in this life. So we need to be aware of that. We're not losing our salvation if we don't take advantage of these opportunities before us like we see in Ephesians 2.10. But it is sin and it needs to be confessed uh, before the Lord. And so we also see not only are these people, these 144,000 first fruits, they've clearly been chosen for a purpose to serve the Lord. We saw that in Revelation 7, that they are uh, essentially 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of the Israelites who have been picked sealed for protection, sent out into the world to be witnesses for him. They're sealed servants, uh, saved for service, just like we are. And, but notice that it also mentions that they are blameless at the end of verse 5. So what does that mean? Does that mean that they just never never committed a sin uh, from the time they were sealed? They just didn't sin? You might actually come across that thought from some theologians. I would be hesitant in that. They're still people. They're not, uh, they're not resurrected in glorified bodies or given glorified bodies. They're still people like uh, we are. However, they are blameless in the eyes of the Lord. They do have imputed righteousness. This is something that we, that we just have to understand and, and fully grasp. And when we do, it can be life-changing if you understand that you are, you have, as a believer in Christ, the righteousness of God the Son credited to you before God the Father. That's the way God the Father sees you And that ought to have an impact on how you live your life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the idea of, that's justification, essentially. The first tense of our salvation At, at justification is God the Father making you right through what God the Son did. And when he does that, he is transferring Christ's righteousness 
to you. It comes from Christ on the cross, dying for our sins, and he grants it to us at the moment that we trust in him. Not a moment before, not some time afterwards. At the moment that we believe, his Christ's righteousness is transferred to us. All of our guilt for the sins of all of our lives that we've committed in the past, that we will commit in the future, that we may be committing right now, at the moment we trust in him are transferred to Christ. He took all of that upon himself on the cross, and he graciously gives us his righteousness. That's this idea of imputed righteousness, the theological term. That makes us blameless. That's what makes the 144,000 blameless. It's not their righteous deeds. It's the one deed of Jesus Christ on the cross, taking on the sins of the world upon his own shoulders. And that grants us justification, uh, a right standing before God, being blameless. And then as we're going to see, as we make our way through this passage, uh, God wants us to live in a certain way. And our guy, he ought to be walking the other way. I just realized that. Maybe I realized that before. But he ought to be, well, maybe not. I don't know, because this is important too. It's kind of it's kind of hard to know. <laughs> looking both ways. He's got eyes in the front and eyes in the back of his head. Uh, looking always to this uh, justification, this imputed righteousness that we have is just key for the Christian life. It, it's the very foundation of it. Understanding the righteousness that we have in Christ remembering constantly you're tempted to do whatever it is that is in your sinful heart. I, I know what's in my heart. I don't know what is in anybody else's heart. But at the moment that you're tempted to do whatever that thing is, look to Christ. Remember what he did for you on the cross. And that goes a long way to helping you uh, avoid that temptation. Also looking this way, what is Christ going to do for me in the future? The third phase of my salvation when it's absolutely complete that could happen at any moment. Uh, as we know, it is imminent. He's standing at the door. He has his reward. Second John eight tells us, and he could come again for you at any moment, looking to that, realizing again, you're tempted to sin uh, remember, oh, what if Christ came again at this exact moment when I'm watching this stupid movie, looking at something uh, inappropriate on my phone, about to explode at the driver in front of me, about to explode at my children or uh, in, in uh, fits of rage, these kinds of things. What if Christ were to come again and catch me up at the moment that that is happening? man, that would be disappointing. So remember that. Remember that he can come and glorify you at any second. Remember that the glorified son of God died on the cross for you. Uh, keeping these both of these things in our minds goes a long way to helping us uh, in the Christian life. Being aware of your position in Christ is absolutely vital uh, for the Christian life. So that's our, our first one. Next is to be chaste. Notice uh, again, Revelation 14 and verse 4. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. We saw this last time. This idea of being sexually pure is, is first step in the Christian life. It is, it's emphasized really if you kind of pay attention to it, it is emphasized throughout the New Testament, particularly the epistles, the writings of, of Paul in particular. He emphasizes this idea of, of being chaste. Uh, and in case I was low on information, I included the, the, <laughs> the idea of the virgin birth. It's the same, the same word there is used, Parthenon, Parthenos is the, the Greek term that is applied to these 144,000. It's the same 
uh, word that was applied to Mary, the mother of Christ, uh, in describing the birth of Christ. How did that take place? Well, unlike any other person, there's only two other people in the history of the world who have not come into this world through the natural means of a man and woman uh, uh, coming together to create the baby. Uh, The other ones are Adam and Eve, by the way. Uh, Jesus was born of a virgin. He, this is absolutely a necessary doctrine. He was born without a, a sin nature like you and I are uh, born. And that's, of course, what makes him, that's one of the things that makes Jesus unique in this world and his humanity. He wasn't born, he wasn't conceived like you and I are. Uh, this idea of being a virgin, being a single, essentially, is what is being portrayed here, is, uh, is what allows these 144,000 to be completely dedicated to the Lord in service. Paul says that's a good thing. If you could do that, if you have that gift, that is a good thing. Uh, most people aren't, don't have that gift. And so Paul includes that in his admonition, 1 Corinthians 7. If you can't do this, mar- you get married to keep you from sin. That's, that's also good. Uh, clearly, 1 Timothy 3 tells us this uh, that you can be married and serve the Lord. In fact, the position of, of elder, some take it to be that you have to be married in order to hold that position. The husband of one wife, it says there, implicating being sexually pure is important to serve the Lord. And again, it's the first and most important aspect of Christian living, after understanding your position in Christ, being sexually pure, keeping sexual relations confined to the marriage of one man and one woman exclusively to that is vital. Uh, We saw last time it is necessary for sanctification, this idea of sexual purity, 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 1 through three, and it goes beyond just the physical act. Of course, Matthew six verses twenty-seven through twenty-eight. Jesus says you can commit this sin right between your your ears, if you will, in your own mind. If you're committing the sin in your mind, it's the same as uh, actually, in God's eyes, it's the same as committing the sin physically. So, of course, that includes things like pornography and these kinds of things fit directly into that category as well and are just outright condemned. And you're not living up to the standard that God has here if, if you are involved in that. Uh, this idea of sexual purity being necessary for sanctification, again, it's throughout uh, the New Testament Romans 13 and verse 11 is one that that we all ought to to have memorized, particularly in the days in which we are living. Do this. uh, Love one another, essentially. Do this knowing the time, Romans 13, 11, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. I don't think much else has to be said about that one at this point. Uh, we can know whether or not we're living by the Spirit, by our actions. The deeds of the flesh are evident, Galatians 5, 19. Uh, sexual immorality is one of those that's specifically mentioned in Galatians 5, 19. And the other verses that you see there, uh, the New Testament clearly laying out this idea of sexual purity being important for Christian living. Proverbs 
chapter 7. We read Proverbs 5 last time. Uh, Proverbs 7 is another one in case you that wasn't enough. Speaking of this person who follows after uh, this young man who follows after the harlot in Proverbs 7, it says in verse 22, suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. I, what a picture that is. If you've, if you've ever raised cattle, you know they're, they're kind of dumb. And they just, if once they're used to you or whatever, they just follow you wherever you're going. So you can hook a lead onto the ox or the steer. If you're raising cattle, you walk it right out of its stall, right into the place where you're going to put a gun to its head and kill the thing. And it doesn't know the difference. That's what you are as you're following this harlot, as you're looking at these things on the internet or watching things you shouldn't be watching exactly the same. You're like an ox who goes to the slaughter or as in one, uh, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. So he does not know that it will cost him his life. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Obviously, uh, being sexually pure is important, is a key to our Christian Life. We have to understand who we are in Christ, be aware of what he has granted to us, be aware that we are perfect in God's eyes through Christ, and the way that that manifests itself, first of all, in our lives as believers, is being chaste, being pure before him. Next, notice that these 144,000 uh, follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That is quite a compliment to these 144,000 that we see in Revelation 14.4. And for us as believers, we ought to be the same. We ought to pattern our lives after these future people who will live during the tribulation. We too ought to be willing to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Jesus uh, talked a lot about being a follower and the cost of discipleship and these kinds of things. And there's, there are entire books written about this concept that are very, very confusing to us today. Everybody talks about being a Jesus follower. I don't know if you've noticed that or uh, that's kind of the latest, well, maybe it's not even the latest lingo. Six months ago, that was kind of the lingo. It's probably something different. Now, being, we're Jesus followers and this kinds of things. But what, what do they actually mean by that is kind of the, the key. Many times they mean that you have to live in a certain way in order to be a Christian. And as we have already seen there in our first point of this sermon, well, that's not true. That's not precisely correct. That's confusing. So if I commit a sin, if I have done this particular sin, oh, let's just take being chased, for example. If I have ever stumbled in that way, does that mean that I'm not a Jesus, quote-unquote, Jesus follower, and now I'm on the path to hell? No, of course. These people are confusing justification and sanctification. They're making this all one package, that is kind of that that this justification is dependent upon what I'm doing in my Christian life. And so now suddenly I'm the one who's earning my salvation. I'm the one who's keeping my salvation. It's no longer Christ who did it all for me on the cross and who even said after, before he died, it is finished. Oh, except for Kurt, he's got a walk this narrow path and make sure he doesn't step off of it. Otherwise he's going into hell. Of course that's not, no, it is finished. It's complete in Christ. And now he wants us to walk with him in our daily lives. He wants us to 
take up our cross and follow him daily in our lives. It, it, it is, uh, this is an, uh, a, a hallmark of the Christian life. Luke 9, 23, Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It, that's what this is all about. This is denying yourself, taking up the cross, keeping your eyes fixed on the cross daily and following Christ wherever he takes you. And he isn't taking you to sin, number one. He isn't taking you to uh, sexual immorality. If you are involved in that, you are not taking up your cross and following him. That's just point blank. But how do we do this? We do it by faith. That's why we say walk by faith. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So this walk, this life, this being a follower of Christ is one that is based in faith also. It's not just us uh, pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, white knuckling it, hanging on, don't do this, don't do this. No, it is faith and trust in Christ, the one who has died for you. You recognize his Holy Spirit indwells you. You're not little uh, spoiler alert, you're not going to be perfect, but when you fail, you recognize it immediately. You keep short accounts with the Lord and you confess it to him and you move on in the Christian life. Not that you are, as it's often been said, sinless, but you, as the days go on, sin less as you understand uh, the resources that God has given you in his word through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and these kinds of things, you will find yourself sinning less, looking for opportunities to serve the Lord, recognizing the, the opportunities that are right before you and taking advantage of them. That's what being a follower of the Lord is all about. And it's done by faith in his word. This isn't just a blind faith or a, a blind leap. Oh, I hope this is the right thing to do. No, it, it's actual belief and trust in, in something tangible. That's what Hebrews 11.1 tells us. It defines what faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's assurance and conviction in faith. It's not just a, a blind leap or a blind trust or something that is opposed to facts. That's what the naysayers will like to say. Oh, I, I believe in facts. I believe in science. I don't believe in faith. Well, you don't understand what faith is. Faith is uh, trust in facts. God the Son came into the world and died on the cross for my sins. That's a fact. That, that, that is just a historical fact. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's something that actually happened in time. And I'm trusting in that. Uh, I'm not disregarding that. I'm trusting in the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells me and lives within me. And he's there every moment of the day that my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I trust in that as a fact from the word of God. And that's what these people in Hebrews 11, kind of the, the hall of fame of faith, it's been called, lists all these people from the Old Testament who had incredible faith and did incredible things uh, that, that are delineated there. Abraham, he didn't just have a, a, a blind leap of faith and trusting God. No, God spoke to him and he had, he had things to trust in and he did. And he carried out great things. Uh, Noah, 
He wasn't just building the ark uh, because he had an inkling that it might rain and get really bad. And, oh, I, I'm just going to take this blind leap of faith. No, God told him he had something tangible to trust in. And he, and he followed what the Lord told him to do. That's faith. Uh, Moses, same thing. He had faith in God. God appeared to him, talked to him, told him to do things. And he had faith in that. And he did it. We're the same way. God has told us things. And we have faith in his word. And that ought to affect our actions, just like Abraham, Noah, Moses, all these great people that we see in Hebrews chapter 11. That's what it means to be a follower. And, and having faith, again, doesn't mean that everything is going to be work out great, your best life now, a million dollars in the bank, and all the cares of your life taken care of. That's not faith. That's, that's a genie who's, who's just going to do good things for you, grant you your three wishes. God isn't a genie. Things don't, are, the circumstances of our life don't necessarily uh, follow obedience. In, in other words, being obedient doesn't guarantee you perfect circumstances in our life. Uh, in fact, the more faith we have, we might find ourselves being tested more. That's how it gets refined. That's how we get to be more like Christ, the result of these trials and difficulties in our life is Christian maturity, perseverance in the midst of trial. That's what Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 is really all about. Speaking of believers in Christ, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we have justification. We're now, we have sanctification as we stand in this faith. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, small t, plural there, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. As we are followers of Christ, looking to Him, trusting in Him, trusting in His Word, trusting that, that we are right with Him and He's bringing about the circumstances of our life to conform us to His image, we find ourselves... Uh, growing in our maturity. And that's what it's really all about to be a follower of Christ. And that's who these uh, 144,000 were. They were purchased from the earth as his servants. They were sexually pure and they followed the lamb wherever he went because they, wherever he led them, because they knew that he is the good shepherd. He's the one who's leading them to to the green pastures and the still water, everything that they need in their lives, just like David spoke of in Psalm 23. And the, the last key from this passage anyway is to be honest. Uh, Revelation 14.5, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Again, uh, this is uh, essential for us as believers. If we, we need to be honest with those who are around us, we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest with God as these 144,000 clearly are. No lie was found in their mouth. They were true uh, to the things that God had for them to say to others, perfectly honest in that. Uh, does this mean that the 144,000 never told a lie in their entire life? Uh, maybe, <laughs> uh, but more likely than not, it's a reference to their honesty in their dealings. Since the time they were sealed, they were honest in their dealings uh, with one another and, the, and the, the message that God had for them to give. And this was, this was impactful in their uh, witness for him. The same is true 
for us. This faithful remnant is mentioned in the book of Zephaniah chapter 3. Verses 12 through 13, it has very similar uh, language there. Verse 13, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, it says in Zephaniah 3.13, speaking of the end. I think that's a reference to these same 144,000, that they're, they are going to be uh, the remnant who who is following the Lord in the end, and they're going to do great things for him. Of course, we need to be honest in our dealings with people around us, not just in the church, but in every area of life. Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. There's a number of, of admonitions to be honest with one another. Lying is evil. It is of Satan. He is a, a liar from the beginning. And what was the first lie that's recorded in the scriptures? It was really even kind of an implied lie. It wasn't a direct lie. Uh, he gets to that later. But uh, initially, his first lie is, did God really say that? He questions the word of God because he knows, Satan knows that the word of God is truth. God gave Adam and Eve truth. Satan questioned truth right from the very beginning. It's the first uh, kind of sin and deception that's recorded in the Bible. It's a lie. He's the father of lies, Jesus tells the Pharisees in John 8, 44. It's the exact opposite of who God is. God is truth, John uh, 1, 14. Jesus Christ is truth. He says, Jesus said to Philip, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is how we have access to God because he is truth. In fact, God uh, is so uh, disgruntled or uh, I don't think that's quite the right word, but he thinks so lowly of lying that he commanded honesty for the Israelites in the Ten Commandments. This is Exodus 20 and verse 16, not bearing false witness, not lying. You can't lie. That, that is against uh, the very nature of who God is. And in fact, he will demand justice for lying. Revelation 21 and verse 8, we'll get to that uh, one of these days where God is taking people who have not trusted in Christ, so they do not have imputed righteousness given to them, and so then, therefore, they are only known by their sins. Uh, murder, robbing, lying, being one of them, being sexually uh, uh, impure, being sexually immoral, all lumped into the same thing. Is that the way that we want to be seen? Do we want to be seen as Christ? Well, trust in him and he'll grant you his righteousness. Do you want to be, are you proud of yourself and the life that you're living? You think, oh, it's so great. Well, got bad news for you. It's not going to turn out too well because none of us are perfect. We're going to be seen through our sins if we're not seen in the light of Christ. And the end of that is the lake of fire for eternity. Lying is evil. Truth is our access to God. John 14, 6, I read that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Christ, because he is truth. He is the same as God. He is the only access to God the Father and the truth. The opposite of lying is our uh, access to God in the spiritual life. John 17, 17, God's word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus says. Your word is truth. So we are sanctified we are made right with God in daily life through walking according to his word. John 32, one, or Psalm 32, 1. We're not going to be perfect in that. 
again, like we've mentioned before. Uh, Psalm 32, 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in those and in and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So as we trust in Christ, we are made right in him. He imputes his righteousness to us. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, Psalm 32, 1 said, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the one who's put his faith in Jesus Christ on the cross, that his sin is covered and his right, his sin goes from you to Christ on the cross. And then it says, how blessed is the man who to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. No, instead he imputes righteousness to those who trust in him. And as we do that, we recognize what Christ has given to us uh, in the spiritual blessings. We understand that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit And then we go to his word and we see in his word that being sexually pure is very important to the Lord because this, those are sins that are done in the body. First Corinthians six says, and our body is the temple of the Holy spirit. That's foundational. Next, we have to understand to be a follower of the the Lord, wherever he takes us walking by faith moment by moment in him. And we also have to understand the importance of honesty in the Christian life. So four keys to the Christian life. Know your position before the Lord. Be chaste before him. Be a follower of him wherever he takes you and be honest in your dealings. And let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that we've been able to look into this morning. I thank you for the book of Revelation. I pray that it would be a blessing to us in Flushing Bible Church that we would uh, read, hear, and heed the things that we find here with emphasis on the uh, heeding and hearing. And we just thank you for this wonderful book. And I thank you for these wonderful people. I pray that you would bless them and encourage them. I pray that your face would shine upon them in this week to come. And we pray for your will to be done. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.